You know, it's said that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, and that's not really the whole truth because what doesn't kill us can make us bitter. It's how we react in it, right? And so for me, I was just in a place of desperation. I did start my journal every day for well over a year. This is too hard. I cannot do it. And I was over my head with estate work, with decision making, with parent now learning all over again how to parent children as a single mom, with financial decisions, household, getting the mower started. I mean, just you name it. And so, but I think those honest admissions bring us to a the place where God wants us. He does not expect us to fake that we're fine or act like we can carry this. And so when we go to God and we say, this is too hard, we are right in the place where he created us to be, which is 100% dependent on him. Welcome again to another Reframing Ministries recording interview with an amazing guest who I know is going to touch your heart because we are talking about grief and grieving and loss. My guest says 12.5 million people are grieving and for every one lost person who has passed, there are five left working through their grief. Lisa says, grief isn't exclusive to the mourning of those that we've lost. It goes into everything that upends life affecting millions of others who have experienced job loss, divorce, health issues, wayward children, loss of dreams, business closures, and more. If there isn't a time like now for us to talk about this, then I don't know when it's more appropriate. Lisa, thank you so much for being a part of this interview and for speaking into those who are grieving and struggling with embracing the life that God has allowed. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for for making space for this tough but you know, it's so impacting um, topic. Yes, it it is so tough. And let's begin just where your story really began, which was going to bed with your husband, having seven children together, waking up as a single parent, now of seven children. What happened? Yeah. For us, it came from nowhere. There were no signs, no symptoms, no warning that anything was going on. And so on a Friday morning, which I thought was like any other Friday morning, you know, we had had, I woke up to my husband's funny breathing and I wasn't even awake enough to open my eyes, but I, his funny breathing, his strange breathing had awakened me. And I just instinctively reached out my hand, nudged him and said, it's just a nightmare, hun. It did sound differently than like his snoring that he would normally do. But I had on so many nights just nudged him and said, you're snoring. If we'll turn over, we can both sleep. And fully expected that he would turn over and we would wake up to his alarm in a couple hours. But as I woke up more, I realized he had not turned over. And I flipped on the overhead light and could see immediately that he was, something was very wrong. He was unresponsive when I called out to him. And so I just went into crisis mode, um, called 911. She began walking me through CPR. And, you know, at the same time, I was counting out these chest compressions. You know, I was doing that as well as I could. I was also not in an out-of-body way at all, but just looking at the scene saying, I am not giving CPR to the husband I just kissed goodnight a few hours ago. Oh my gosh. Um, this is not happening to our family. Our mind just tries to grapple with these this trauma. 
And so I wasn't even two rounds in when the paramedics came in and they took over and I thought, okay, good. He is in good hands. And they took him to the ER on a stretcher and um, I followed. And it was not long after I got there that they called me into that, the counseling room you don't want to go into. You want to go into the patient room where you're going to be reunited. Even if there are wires, even if there are tubes, you know, you want to go into the patient room. And in the counseling room, the doctor said that they had worked on him for over two hours and they had never been able to revive him. And so life shattered in every way imaginable. How did you breathe? I mean, you heard that news, had to walk out of the hospital with his belongings. What, what, I mean, that, that moment of shock permeates all of our losses and all of the kinds of griefs that we face when there was a, there was an ending to life as you knew it. What Mm. were your thoughts? I, I think, you know, there's this cloak that comes over us in these kind of tragedies. And I, I describe it as kind of a soft landing. Some people call it the fog of grief, and this can come a lot of ways. Listen, it, you know, those who are listening, you may have a moment too that you're thinking about where you got a phone call you didn't expect, or the doctor may have diagnosis that you didn't see coming that has changed life, or a spouse said, I'm done. I never loved you. And life changes in so many ways. Um, I think, you know, that soft landing comes over us because we just cannot comprehend the, um, the immensity of it all. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, you know, at first I went through the, the very uh, necessary steps of making all the decisions, the estate and all that. But when, when, you know, five days later, when the memorial service was over and everybody went back to their lives and their homes and our life quieted, mm-hmm. and it was just the children and I, that's really when I had to begin to to make intentional decisions, you know, how am I going to not just get through my own grief, but how am I going to navigate my children through this grief? I had a four-year-old all the way up to a 19-year-old. And um, one of the things that I started to do just out of desperation, not because I was like, this is the way to do it. I was so grief naive, but I was desperate for the Lord. And I would kind of get my kids started every morning. And then I would get away in my minivan and I would cry out my minivan. I could Mm Um, ask the hard questions. I could give God my needs. I could just talk audibly or journal it out or pray it out. And then I would open the word and I was reading through the Bible for a year. Um, So I didn't go look for scripture that would say what I wanted it to. But whatever that day's passage was, I would read it. And God never, never, um, it, it just stunned me that God would always meet me on the words of the page. Whether I was in the Old Testament, the Psalms, the New Testament, God would give me enough hope, reminding me who he is and how he cares for us, to go back in and parent for that day. But I had to go do it again the next day. It wasn't enough for the week. Well, what's interesting is you said that you would journal each day. And for a year, your journal, your journal started with, I cannot do this. So how did you get from that space to turning to the Lord and saying, I'm going to welcome this and I need you. Yeah. I'm not sure I ever welcomed it. I mean, if we're just brutally honest, for sure. I never said, Oh, this is going to be a growth opportunity. Um, (laughs) No, I don't think we look at it at the moment. It's like, I hate everything about this. 
Absolutely. And it's okay. It is okay to say, I hate that my husband died at 46. I hate that my children will never have an earthly father again. I hate that this disease has taken so much of life as I knew it, or that divorce has ravaged my family. Um, it's okay to say those things, but you know, it said that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And that's not really the whole truth because what doesn't kill us can't make us bitter. It's how we react in it, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, I was just in a place of desperation. I did start my journal every day for well over a year. This is too hard. I cannot do it. And I was over my head with estate work, with decision-making, with parent now learning all over again how to parent children as a single mom, with financial decisions, household, getting the mower started. I mean, just you name it. Plus the fear that came in was a whole nother thing. The enemy who likes to get his foot in there. and so, But I think those honest admissions bring us to a, the place where God wants us. He does not expect us to fake that we're fine or act like we can carry this. De you know, divorce, death, disease, they are too big for us. And so when we go to God and we say, this is too hard, we are right in the place where he created us to be, which is 100% dependent on him. Mm. You know, what I love what you wrote about lament and emotions, one of your statements is the emotions of life altering loss are brutal. It takes enormous emotional, physical, mental, and spiritual space to process emotions like shock, sadness, despair, anger, fear, regret, vulnerability. I mean, those are such primal emotions. It feels like we're being crushed from the inside out. And so mm. as you felt crushed, you developed a process of, of talking about your emotions in a lament sort of way. Can you explain that to me? Yes. So, you know, therapists, counselors will call those negative emotions and that's probably professionally correct, but they're not negative to God. Mm. They are when God created us fearfully and wonderfully he created our emotions as well. And so while we don't like those emotions, like despair and sadness and loneliness, um, they unsettle us. They never unsettle God. We can bring our emotions to God and we are safe with him, um, probably safest with him to express our heart with him. And it's really an exchange because those emotions are too much for us to bottle up or to carry, what do we do with them? They're too much to like, even if we have a good friend or, or, a, or a mom would sit and listen to us, they're too much to unpack on anybody else. But we have to do something with them. We have to process them. And the Bible gives us the way. I didn't realize that this was patterned in the word until I was just doing it out of desperation. The Bible calls it lament. And we see it all over the word. We see it, especially in the Psalms, where David would come to God and say, how long, oh Lord, are my bones are drying up or why are you letting this injustice happen? And um, as he was doing that, he was giving his hard emotions and his hard questions to God, expressing them honestly before God. But then this is the key. He was laying them there and saying, but I trust you. It Lament always ends with trust. So it goes, Lord, I am hurting, but I trust you. Lord, I don't understand why you would allow this, but I trust you. Lord, I am so fearful over my future, but I trust you. And in that place, we let God take the burden of our emotions and we pick up his trust. And it is a process over and over again. You know, I love what, in fact, I did write down the um, statement that you made 
that is often said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And then you said, no, but it makes you bitter. Did you struggle with bitterness and resentment looking at other families who would go to soccer games and there's mom and dad or at church, there's a husband and wife and there's couples ministries. Did you struggle with those emotions? And like you said, the idols that come up, we're not really dealing with necessarily the loss, but the fact that we're bitter about the loss. Yeah. We've got to deal with that bitterness because if we do not root it out, it will just infect the, 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 all the good that God still has for us, which we may not be able to see yet. Um, I don't think I was bitter. I was too desperate for the Lord and he was, um, I was just giving it to him every day, but I definitely was envious. There were definitely times where I was sitting behind a couple friends of mine at church and they would hold hands during this worship or I would see even today, you know, my daughter's ballet recital, I, I might see a dad giving flowers to his little girl and I get that little that little tinge. I mean, there are times where I'm off social media because I know Father's Day weekend is a hard weekend for us. I know that sometimes the holidays are hard for us. And so um, it's okay to feel that loss. I think what we're doing is missing at, at the root. We're missing what we don't have and what we always thought would be there. But then it's just another opportunity to, to just give it to the Lord and say, I cannot do this. I cannot parent my children. I cannot fix their broken hearts. I cannot be their dad. Um, and I'm lonely without a companion, without a you know, a spouse, but I'm just dependent on you. Yeah. You had nothing. Now you also had seven very sad, broken, mm. grieving children. And grief is not a one size fits all, as you well know. How did you work with your children through their grief while trying to juggle all of the other things? What are some um, tools that you said that you found this really was beneficial or helpful for them? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I think that um, we do need to be working on our own grief, but we don't need to show up all put together for our kids. My kids definitely saw me cry we read through books together very intentionally. I, some of them were on heaven. So I ordered like picture books for my little ones on heaven. Um, and we read through, you know, um, Criswell's book on heaven that would just happen to be sitting on my shelf. I pulled it down and it's a tome if you've ever seen it and began to just walk through some of those questions about heaven. What does scripture say about heaven? We read through other books like um, Hind Speed on High Places. I don't know if you've ever read that. And there's a children's version and we would do two pages a day it was like our devotional time. And then we would unpack that. Um, we stayed in the word. I think practically some of the things we did are, um, one is I said, we're going to need a lot of grace with each other this year. Mm. That's how grief naive I was. I thought it was like a year and then we'll be much different next year. Sure. Because there's that misnomer um, <laughs> of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages. It's never ending. It's not going to ever go away. It's a loss that happened, but every Father's Day, like you said, every holiday, every birthday. So you're- I'm so glad you said that. Yes, it does soften. If anybody's in that really active, raw, painful grief, it does soften. God does walk us through the most painful part, but it is always this side of heaven, a loss, and it can, can rear up different ways. 
Yeah. But for my kids, I said, we, we're going to need a lot of grace. My four-year-old was very concrete. She was trying to figure out what, what is death? What does it mean? You know? And so every day for uh, over a year, she would just randomly in her car seat in the back of the car, cry out, I miss my dad. I miss, I miss my daddy. I miss my daddy. And I would have the same conversation with her every day for over a year. Um, wow. my boys, yes. Just trying to coach her little heart through that. My teen boys, um, wanted to go back to life as normal, not so much in the home, but when they were out in youth group, when they were playing sports, they didn't want to be that kid whose dad, you know, they didn't want to be pointed out. And so making sure that our home was still a, a place where we kept the conversation open, where I didn't say, how, how are you doing today? Cause they're going to never respond to that, but what do you miss most today? So open-ended questions. Yes. Open-ended, you know, what's hard for you right now? Or even telling a story just to get that, just to keep the conversation open. Let me tell you about your dad, you know, some memories that they may not have. Hmm. And, um, and I think long-term, even now, we may not always say it at the milestones, at the weddings, at the Christmases, we all know. And sometimes it's appropriate to say something. And sometimes we just all know that we miss him. If a parent isn't staying current with their own grief, which you were and are, how do you think that response would have, how do you think that dialogue would have unfolded? Mm. Did it bring so much out of you? Were there times where they said, I miss daddy and you would just break? I think the, the only times I broke were when I was just physically exhausted. You know, being a single parent means you're the early bird and the night owl, you're the teen mom and the toddler mom and preschool mom. You're the good cop and the bad cop. You're answering all the questions, making all the decisions. And I think, you know, there were times where I look back now where my daughter would want, my 17-year-old daughter always wanted to talk at 1130 at night when I was just headed to bed. <sighs> Can you talk, mom? And I, there were times I did not show up well for her in that. There were times that I did. There were times where we're just at capacity. Again, listen, we are flesh. We weren't made to carry this. In those times, we just have to say, you know, babe, I did not do the best. Can you talk now? Or can I, can I, I want to listen to you. I want to know. And I think just being honest with our children, I think your initial question was um, if we weren't dealing with our grief, if a parent is not actively dealing with our grief, listen, it is very tempting to to escape from that grief because it's so hard or mask it or try to shortcut through it. But there is no shortcutting through grief. We have got to face it head on. And you know, what does that mean? That means like, let that pain, like feel that pain. We can't mask it with a substance or shopping or Netflix. We've got to process it. Mm -hmm. And if a parent is actively doing that, then we can more have compassion for our children who are also doing it. And it's never going to be perfect in any family, but if we're just honest and authentic and, and also just continually pointing our kids to God, you know, I said to my kids early on, this is not the childhood I wanted for you, but if you will, if you will let God, you will see him in ways you never would have otherwise. And I know that there are people today. I just heard last week from a couple who lost their child at full term that my, one of my sons and his wife are walking with them. She took me aside and she says, I know he gets it. He has compassion because of what he walked through. Wow. That is, that is a prayer I prayed. That's the kind of empathy that you can't get from a book. It's the experience and the depth 
that God brought you to and through yeah. and continues to. And as Second Corinthians says, from the comfort we're given, then we can comfort others. What are some things that brought comfort and what are some things that did not bring comfort as you all were processing this yeah. and still today? Yes. Great question. Um, I'll start with the things that didn't. The things, because there were fewer, honestly, the things that didn't bring comfort were when people tried to give me a platitude mm -hmm. early on in my grief. And we try to do this because we want to fix somebody's grief. He's in a better place. At least you are young and can remarry. Oh. At least you still have children in the home. Um, you know, these things, oh, even things like, um, you know, Romans 8, 28, listen, I have banked my life on Romans 8, 28, that God will bring good from where I see ashes, but there's a time and a place to listen and let somebody lament and not dismiss or just bandaid over their, their pain with something that even is true. And so, um, what helped? What helped was uh, when people just showed up. I had one friend who came, she was out of town. And so she came like day four. And um, isn't it funny that I remember like these details so concretely. For sure, it's great. She came, she came day four. And so she just, she, there was nothing else to bring. We had a house of food and tissues and she just came and sat with me mm. and just listened. There were women who came and said, one, one, friend came and said, um, the day before his memorial service, told my kids, bring me your outfits and I'll iron them. Um, friends came long after. I think the most comforting thing that we can do for somebody is say, you're not alone. I am with you in this and then be there for the long term. And we won't be able to do that for everybody in our life, but we are, God has put us and knit us together with certain people, friends and family that we can be there for them on their milestones, on their hard days, uh, take their kids for a day, all of those things, just send them a text mm -hmm. and just remember with them. I mean, still to this day, there are friends who will text us on the day of his home going and mm -hmm. say, I'm remembering with you. Wow. What a comfort that is. Um, I found it very fascinating, fascinating that you brought up the enemy and how the enemy can work so um, just, just so sneaky when we are grieving. You said, let me turn my little page over here. You said, um, when we are in deep loss or handling hard decisions, one of the biggest battles is spiritual. It may feel like you're fighting the diagnosis or feel like you're fighting a lack of finances, an ex-spouse, loneliness, the loss of your health, but that is not your real enemy. The real enemy is Satan and his schemes, which you described so wonderfully, which means predictable or present methods used in organized evil doing and well-crafted trickery. How in the world did you fight that spiritual battle on top of these, these emotions and your daughter wanting to talk at 1130 at night and you have no bandwidth? How, what did that look like for you? You can almost feel in times like this, when there's a shaking of your life, you can almost probably feel the enemy. You know, he's always at work. We know that. But he also waits for an opportune time. And these are opportune times when he can get in and he can cause us to doubt, 
cause us to doubt God's goodness, cause us to doubt that God is for us and um, begin to just work in our mind with planting seeds of bitterness, like you talked about, or seeds of fear that can, that just keep us paralyzed and from moving forward. And we, it's a spiritual battle. So our battle is not with the people in our home, even though somebody may be acting out, you know, our child may be acting out, or there may be somebody who we should have been able to trust and um, has betrayed us. Really, our battle is against the enemy. And in all of that, it's it's a spiritual battle. You know, three times in Ephesians 6, uh, the word says to pray, to pray, to pray. And I think we have all of that battle armor and you have the shield of faith. We have the sword of the spirit. We have um, all of, all of this are my my pastors right now preaching through this. So it is fresh on my mind, but um, to pray. And I think to spend time in the word so that we are constantly washing our thoughts with God's truth and continually realigning our, the lies that, that the enemy sees and that our, even our emotions will drum up, you know, with the truth of God and then praying and ask people to step in. Listen, when people say, what can I do? Cause people want to know what to do to help say, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me as I'm making decisions? Would you pray that, um, that I'm not doubting the Lord? Would you pray that I can get a handle on sphere? Would you pray for me as I'm having to deal with this relationship that's sticky? Give them a very, in, you know, very intentional thing to pray for. Hmm. You know, what's interesting and it's coming to mind right now is we're surrounded by hand sanitizers every single place. <laughs> it's almost the hand, it's almost the sanitizer for your soul, where every time if we washed our hands and if we prayed at the same time as we're sanitizing our hands, I think the enemy would have to take a step back because that's calling on Jesus to be my protector, my fortress, my savior, my redeemer, my friend, my counselor, my comforter. Throughout the day, as Psalm 1 says, pray without ceasing, keep meditating on the Lord day and night. That sounds like it was really your your cornerstone for building strength and a foundation. Yeah, and it didn't look high, you know, it didn't look super uh, religious. You know, when I say I was, I wasn't on my knees in a room with candles lit, you know, it was an ongoing conversation and there was such intimacy. And I I knew, I knew that I was so intimate with God. I was so desperate for him. And I remember saying to God many times, Lord, there's going to be a day where I feel better, where, where I can, you know, I have my footing again and single parenting is that I have a new rhythm in our home. Do not let me move from this place of intimacy with you. You are so intentional. I was desperate. I was so desperate. So I love what you just said. It wasn't a religious like prayer time. And a lot of times in that desperation, our faith gets all the shells broken off and we are raw. How have you changed? Um, not just in who you are, but how you walk with Jesus. Because I know people who are on the front side of a loss right now are wondering, I can't move on. Mm-hmm. And and certain things have to fall to the wayside. You can't just put on platitudes. You are vulnerable because you're raw. So talk to that person and talk hope into their lives that that authenticity is coming and it's freeing. Yeah. 
we, I think most of us as believers want that, want a life of faith. We want to be faith, uh, live that life of faith. You know, like we see in the word, like the Josephs and the Pauls and the Davids. We just don't want the circumstances that are going to cause us to have that faith. And um, you and I were talking about this before that we pray against the very things that really cause us to be a hundred percent dependent on God and look for him to do things that we cannot. If, if the person listening right now is in that place where they cannot fix their current circumstances, you are in the best place you can be. God created you for a relationship of dependence. And when life empties, when, when things fall, um, when, when things aren't there that we thought would always be there, it really gives us the opportunity to see that God is not just a God of the Bible for those people back then, or for somebody we know in church who's teaching our class or the, you know, our pastor in the pulpit, but that he is real. He is active. He is practical. God is so practical and that he, um, he will, he is enough. Honestly, I cannot tell you how many times in my loneliness, when my kids would be in bed and I was just so painfully lonely. And even, even in the years since I'm not remarried. So, um, when that has kind of come to the top, I have just had to learn to, to be satisfied in Christ. And, you know, if I am not satisfied in Christ now, nothing God gives me will ever satisfy me. I loved when you talked about finding your smile again, because I know there are times in my own experiences of being shattered. I think I'll never laugh again. I'm never even going to smile again. I'm not going to ever make it through this holiday. What would you say to the person who is exactly right there? I, I get it. I thought I will never smile again. I will never feel real joy again. Like I will make the most of this and I will try to be the best mom I can be for my kids, but I don't think I'll ever really feel that bubbling up joy that comes from these moments that are just gifts. And, um, fortunately I saw early on that that's not true. In fact, we can be both grieving in deep grief and have joy. And, you know, two weeks into, um, Dan's loss was my daughter's 18th birthday. And she came to me and said, I want to have an 18th birthday. And I thought to myself, there is no way I can plan a birthday party right now. And I knew it was a huge milestone and she's, she's all about the the fun. So she was grieving. She was, she was definitely in grief too, but she also was turning 18. For sure. And, um, you know, as God put this together, we went to, we ended up going to make a long story short. We ended up going to, um, like this Christian ballroom dancing place in town and her friends came, they all wore pink for her. People brought balloons, they brought food, they brought cakes, they brought flowers. All my kids were there. Even my four-year-old and six-year-old came, my, my boy, you know, my sons were dancing with their with her sister. And at the end of the night, we're putting the gifts and the balloons and the flowers in the car. And she said, this has been the best birthday. And I thought to myself, only God can do that. Only God could bring joy in the midst of our grief. Um, you know, Psalm 126 was a prayer, was a song that I prayed in advance. So often it says when the captives return to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. 
we said the Lord has done great things. And it says those who go out carrying, I'm going to, I'm good. This is my paraphrase now. Cause I can't remember it. Those who go out, um, sowing and weeping will come back with songs of joy. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're gonna have to look that one up. Cause I, I didn't do it justice, but that sowing and weeping, knowing that there would be a day that if I did this work of grief, if I didn't try to skip through it or, you know, substance abuse through it, that um, God would again, bring me to a place where I felt good again. And it was only God. Only God. Now, in the middle of all this, let's add in that your son, Seth, had an emergency health experience and you walked through that again on your own. How was that? You know, it's interesting because sometimes I think we think, okay, I'm check. I went through the big, the big life bummer. (laughs) Yes. I've learned all my lessons. You know, I'm good. And life doesn't work that way. We are not guaranteed that this is our going to be our only trial. In fact, Jesus said in this world, you will have suffering. So we shouldn't really be surprised or shocked when it comes and it always comes unannounced. And for us, this, this with my son did, he walked in the back door the day before he was going to head to the university. And so my back hurts. And so I did the mom thing, just go take a hot shower. (laughs) And he came out, couldn't even, couldn't get his shirt off. And it fast forward, it ended up being a large um, mass on his lower spine tumor. And so he had, it, you know, God, again, I'm remembering that both the intensity and um, crisis of that moment, because it was very much a crisis and God's hand all on us as we walked through it. It was so apparent. Uh, we got into a doctor's appointment when their phones had shut down. You couldn't even get in. They were like, we're not, we can't see you for three weeks. And I kept trying to say, this is not a three week thing. We have, this was, he was diagnosed. The, the, we saw the mass on a Saturday morning. So we had to wait till Monday to get into the doctor. He was in excruciating pain and they finally saw us. Um, and then they said, we don't have any surgery. We'll go ahead and admit him through the emergency room. We don't have any surgery openings for three more days. And my friend worked, she happened to be, happened to be the post-op nurse, uh, post-op nurse for this neurosurgeon. And she called me that day and said, two people haven't showed up for neurosurgery. They're going to call him down any minute. That's amazing. Who doesn't show up for neurosurgery? That was just God's hand on him. I could, I could tell you a dozen more ways that God was with us. And, you know, Talking about walking through these things, there, there, we, we never want these places of pain, mm. and yet God's hand is so evident in it if we will look for it. So, as we wrap up, Lisa, what are a few things that are just golden nuggets from these experiences that you have been tested, your faith has been tried, that you can pass along to those on the front side? Well, I would give you two. And the first is that if we will give God all the pieces of our broken heart, that he can reshape what's shattered, it won't go back to the way it was. My life will never look like the way it did or the way I thought it would. But God can rebuild beauty and bring, just reshape us in it. 
And then the second thing that has really been, was really eye-opening and helpful for me, came late in grief for me. It came in the second year. Um, I was in my minivan again, just kind of doing my quiet time with the Lord and being your honest. Sanctuary. Your van I, became really your sanctuary. <laughs> it really is. And um, I didn't say it out loud, but at the top of my thoughts came this, I don't like my life. And on the heels of that came these thoughts that while this was unexpected for me, that God had allowed it, that it was intentionally allowed by God. And as such, it was not a plan B. I was not consigned to live out the leftovers of the life that I wanted or to try to make the best out of second best, which is what I thought I was doing, but that this was an intentional chapter two. And that as such, since, since God had allowed it, that it had as much abundance and joy and good as all the days before. And, you know, when that, when those thoughts came, it gave me some truth that I could kind of lean into. It wasn't like life felt good. Like, Oh, well, I am all better. That just takes care of everything. I still very much was grieving and starting very much um, going through the, you know, problems of single parenting and the, you know, still very, uncertain about my future, what it looked like, but to know that God does not give a second best and that this is an intentional chapter two really gave me hope that I was not, I, that this, this life that was unexpected could be good. I love that you said, I'm not going to live out the rest of my days on leftovers, that mm. this is not plan B. This is a new life chapter. In fact, in some ways, in many ways, a new book, because mm -hmm. you're moving forward, having to make new choices with a completely different template, one that you mm -hmm. didn't expect, but God has written and outlined as you have been faithful. I also love that you said we have a choice with our feelings, feel them, but then it's our choice as to what we do with them. And mm -hmm. some of the choices you've made since then, you've started um, on Facebook, the hopeandgrief.com site. I think that's the book or that's the Facebook site. People can also find you on your own site and then Instagram also anywhere else where we can find you. You have a place for grieving widows. Where can they connect with you? Yes. So the best place to connect with me is at my site, lisaapolo.com. And that's two P's and one L. And then we do have a private uh, Facebook group for widows, young widows with children called Widow Mama Collective. Mm -hmm. And if you search groups, Widow Mama Collective, we keep it closed, not because um, it's not open. It is, you are welcome to join. We would love to see you there and minister to you, but because we want it to be a safe place. And so it's a closed group. And you find that even people who aren't dealing with death, but loss of another kind really benefit from the time there. Oh yeah. Well, this, you know, I, we intentionally included stories of other kinds of losses, like yes. um, a medical diagnosis or a divorce in the book. And, and my ministry really goes beyond that. Yes. I love that you did that because one of the, one of the chapters includes the, your friend whose daughter had a 45 minute seizure at three months of age. And of course, in my world, the disability world, she's given the diagnosis of Dravet syndrome, which is mm -hmm. devastating. So yeah. please look into Lisa's resources as, as we come to a close, because this isn't just for the loss of a spouse, it's for loss of any kind, because it's through that loss that we do find what we really believe 
and who we will go to mm. in that in that broken place. Well, Lisa, thank you for writing this book and for pouring your heart out and for being available to those who are longing to have a smile again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is a great conversation. And I remember wanting to know one other person who had walked through this and could just be the flesh and bones, you know, hope that I needed. And there you are. <laughs> you are that person for so many people. So thank you. Thank you for having me.